We are continuing in a, a series of messages on what are called the Psalms of Ascents, or the songs that climb higher. So there are a number of different theories behind these psalms, and the most common one, and probably the correct one, is that these were songs for Jews to sing as they were traveling together on their triannual pilgrimages to Jerusalem from wherever else they lived in Israel. My favorite theory, however, is a little bit different. My favorite theory is that these were songs for the last 15 steps that went up the southern, uh, the, the southern wall into the Temple Mount. And so as they climbed on each step, they would pause there and one of the Levites would sing one of these psalms. So in order, these are your final 15 steps up into worship on the Temple Mount itself. So think about staircases here for a moment, would you? What is the tallest staircase that you have ever climbed? So just think about that for a moment. Maybe you've been up a lighthouse, could be 150 steps or whatever. Let me tell you about the tallest staircase that I've ever climbed. It is Cocoa Head, a volcanic crater in Oahu. Let me see that picture up there. We got it? There we go. So on the left, I'm on top of the volcanic crater. On the right, this is looking down the, uh, from the top, and you can see it used to be a railroad bed, and they just kept the railroad bed and turned it into steps that climb. And there are about a thousand steps when you're at the bottom looking up. You're going like, this is terrifying. So this was my daughters and me right before we climbed Cocoa Head. One more picture. There we go. Um, so you can see like that strip going up the side is those thousand steps and it's really terrifying. It's not the tallest staircase in the world, by the way. That honor belongs to Mount Neeson in Switzerland, which has a staircase with 11,674 steps. I'm not going. Okay, so the Psalms in general, but the Psalms of Ascent in particular are climbing Psalms. They tend to start low and they end high, and Psalm 130 is one of the clearest examples of a psalm that will start you down low, but by the end of it, you will be higher. And it's perfect for Advent, because Advent has these themes, and we began today with hope, and then we go to peace, and then we go to joy, and you're thinking, joy, how can it get any better than joy? But the final Sunday is actually love, which is the highest of our climbs through the Sundays of Advent. So Psalm 130 is about the climb. It's about the ascent. It's about stepping stones. And there are four clear steps involved in Psalm 133. To get you from the depths, wherever you are, to hope are four steps in this psalm. Aren't you glad there aren't a thousand of them to get you from here to there? So one step at a time, my greatest love in preaching is something you're going to have to sort of tolerate, I guess, a little bit today, because sometimes I mix it up a little bit. My greatest love in preaching is just to take the text itself and pull it apart and look at it word by word, sentence by sentence. And I want you to feel that through that psalm today. And in order to do that, I needed to put it up on the screen because I have a particular version of the Bible. So you actually, even though we're going through the text, you don't necessarily need your, your Bible in front of you unless you want to compare. What I'm putting on the screen actually is the same as the version in your pews, if you want to look at it. 
but it's the New International Version. I'll tell you why I'm using it, but it's the old New International Version. All right, because the new New International Version in 2011 altered the words enough in this psalm that I didn't like it very much. So I want to put this up there and show you that the psalmist is very intentional about four steps to get you from wherever you are down in the depths up to hope. And we're going to begin with crying. So this is verses 1 and 2. If we'll put that up. There we go. So I, in each case, I've highlighted the words as they appear in the scripture. Let me just, I tell you what, why don't you read it with me? Because I want you to focus on these words. And some of you are auditory and some of you are visual. So you can see it, but read this with me in unison. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. So you notice that the word cry appears twice in these two verses. It's a common word in the Old Testament, uh, but it's rarely translated elsewhere, cry. It's ra actually rather rare for it to be translated as cry. Normally it is translated call or sometimes proclaim. So the idea behind it is actually volume. So you could actually substitute the word yell in here. Or if you're a good southerner, holler, all right? Out of the depths I holler to you, O Lord. Hear my holler for mercy. Remember, we're talking about pre-PA systems, pre-bullhorns, even pre-megaphones. And the only way to hear, be heard in a large crowd, if you've got a proclamation for the king, or, or whatever you want to say, you've got to yell louder and get the crowd's attention, right? That's the word that's used here. Oh, Lord, listen to my yell or cry for mercy. So we tend to cry the loudest in this sense of the word at a football game. When your team scores the touchdown, you're, you're yelling, you're hollering. Even if it's just me at my house, I tend to yell louder actually when the other team does something good than when my team does. But at any rate, that's when we tend to yell at sporting events. Well, this is not about a sporting event. This is a holler for mercy. And the psalmist is crying out of the depths. Everywhere else in the Hebrew Bible that this word is used, it's used of water. So now think about that metaphor, that image for a moment. When you're crying out of the depths, you're drowning. So for a moment, imagine yourself falling into a well or into a lake or like Jonah thrown over the board in the middle of a surging Mediterranean sea. That's what we mean by the depths. So when we, turn to our, when we turn to our word cry or call, we know it's not literal either because you can't make any sound when you're drowning in water. And crying is not about your tears because your tears don't add anything to the volume of water around you. What is the purpose of step one if you're trying to find hope it's a desperate plea to have somebody do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. So what the psalmist is saying here is if you want to get to hope, the first thing you have to do is to admit that you don't have any hope in your current situation. You have to take your, your whatever it is that has you giving the feeling of drowning, and you have to say, I need 
at that moment, right? That's step one. So if you're trying to get from whatever your depths is, and we're going to find in a moment a little bit more, we have a hint already, but we're going to find in a moment uh, probably what this particular psalmist's depth is. But before you get there, his depth may not be your depth. And I want you to live for a moment for whatever is or may be or has been your depths. What is it when you get to the point where you have, in the, in, in the, the language of addiction, you've hit bottom? Anybody ever hit bottom? Anybody at, at bottom right now? And everything you've tried to do didn't get you out of the depths? If you're going to find hope, the first thing you have to do is to admit that. It has to be to articulate that, to say, I am somewhere I cannot fix. I can't solve this on my own. You'll never get to hope unless you realize that's where you are in the depths. And unless you cry, you call, you plead for mercy in, that, in the depths. So now let's go to verses 3 and 4 and read this with me as well. Step 2. Altogether, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Now we know why the psalmist is in the depths. His particular version of the depths is his sin. So he has disobeyed God. He feels deeply his disobedience of God, and it has left him in a place where he knows I can't do anything about this. So we don't know this specific sin, and maybe that's better that we don't. Something uh, this was actually written about, maybe even for, but about King David's sin with Bathsheba. And if you remember the story, it's a multi-layered sin. It's adultery, it's murder, it's deception. So maybe that's not where you are today, but maybe it is. Maybe you've realized that you've brought some things on your own that your depths are self-imposed, right? So if it's not that, what is it? Is it a relationship that you have tried to repair and you realize, I can't fix this on my own? Is it an economic situation or crisis that you find yourself in? I can't, I can't help this. Is it an employment situation? What is it that has you in a situation where you go like, this is beyond me. The psalmist wants you to live there with him. But his depths have to do with sin. Now, with that in mind... People have found verse 4 rather puzzling, and this is the reason I chose this particular version of the Bible, because other versions change the wording here. About half of English versions use the word fear, and about half do not. And there are a couple reasons that the ones that don't use the weird word fear avoid it. Number one is we're kind of afraid of fear these days, and particularly fear associated with God. So we don't like that, and we're going like, why should God have to be feared? And you'll hear people say what is, in my view, a rather kind of silly thing to say, my God is not the kind of God you would fear. And I want to say, like, who gave you permission to define God? Like, you don't get to invent your own God. So the word here is actually multi-pronged, multi-layered. And it has to do with fear and honor and respect and even love and reverence. And so you'll find all of those words tied up in different translations. But anybody who's been in a position of authority, whether you're a parent or a boss or a teacher or the coach of a football team or a volleyball team or whatever, 
Anybody who has been in a position of authority knows that fear is part of the package. So there are consequences for you not doing what I tell you to do. They will hurt you, they will hurt the team, they will hurt your life, they will hurt the community. And so therefore there's a certain amount of fear involved whenever there's authority. And to strip off the word fear and to use only the word reverence or honor takes away something really critical in terms of our understanding of God. You say, that's so Old Testament to fear God. It's Jesus who says, you should fear the one who is able to throw your soul and body into hell. So it's not just Old Testament. There is a fear element in God that we need to understand and grasp. So the other reason people don't like this is not only the word fear, but the phrase that comes before it. So look at that phrase. Therefore, it says, no, excuse me, but with you there is forgiveness therefore you are feared. And people read this and they go like, that's a non sequitur. It's, it's logically inconsistent. Why would you say, God, you're the one who forgives me, so I'm afraid of you, right? So if you read it that way, you're going like, that's really puzzling. So we need to translate it then, well, God, you're the one that forgives, and therefore, because of your mercy, we reverence or honor you. I still like the word fear, and here's why. In the original, the word with you is first in that sentence. So God, with you, as if to emphasize it, there's forgiveness. So what's the point here? God, you're the only one that can forgive, right? With you, there is forgiveness, therefore, you're feared because you're the only one that can release us out of the depths. So I think there's a actually positive, wonderful theological sense here that reminds us that we are ultimately accountable to God and he's the only one who ultimately can punish us and he's the only one ultimately who can forgive us and therefore God is feared. I think the psalmist is saying it that way on purpose. Now, there are a couple, there's a verse before that even, and the key to this section is actually verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Now, we've already talked about the fact that he's now exposing why he is in the depths, right? But there's something else very powerful here that isn't just in this verse. It's all the way through the psalm. There are two different names for God that are here. And they sound the same if you're reading them, but they look differently if you look at them on the screen, all right? Most of you, maybe many of you have already caught this. One of them has Lord in all capital letters, and the other one has Lord with a capital L and then lowercase letters, all right? That's telling us there are two different names for God that are here. The one with all capital letters is the word Yahweh, or older word Jehovah. So this is the personal name for God by which he revealed himself to the patriarchs and to Moses. And it's like, what's your name, God? It's Yahweh. It's the personal covenant relational name of God for his people. It's the way God wants his people to know, like, I'm your God. It's, he's very personal. The other word, Adonai, is a word that means master or sovereign or Lord in that sense. So really, uh, the first word, all caps, is a little bit of a misunderstanding if you hear it the same way, right? So because the idea of Lord means he's the boss, he's in charge. Now what's really interesting, again, as I study this text, 
is that those words, they don't come back to back in the English in almost any version. They do come back to back in the Hebrew. So the psalmist is deliberately sort of juxtaposing them with each other. And we could read this verse like this. If you kept a record of sins, Yahweh, Adonai, who could stand? All right, they're right next to each other to remind us that the reason God is to be feared and honored and respected and loved is because he is both personal and he is powerful. So he is Yahweh and he is Adonai. So my point is that if you want to get up from your place of the depths and something has you mired in that drowning sea, the first step is, the first step is crying. You have to name it. You have to admit, I'm here and I can't get out of it by myself. The second step is to look up and say, there's only one who can free me from the depths. And that is the one who is called Adonai Yahweh. That is the one who is both powerful and personal. And I fear him if I don't allow him to reorder this circumstance in my life and to make something good out of it. He's the only one that can do it. Which takes us to the third step in our Psalm of Ascent, and that is waiting. And it's like this was the easiest one to find the key word, because in these two verses, the word wait appears five times. So if you have decided, okay, I'm in the depths and I'm crying, and I am fearing God, I'm recognizing who he is, all powerful and yet personal, what's step three? Waiting. Now, we don't like waiting, do we? So this time of year, I don't like waiting. On Thursday, for reasons having to do with other people's schedule, I had to wait until 6 o'clock p.m. for Thanksgiving dinner. Say, oh, like, furthermore, because I ate so much at Thanksgiving dinner, I had to wait till 9 o'clock for my favorite part of Thanksgiving dinner, which is my wife's apple pie and pumpkin pie, and no, I did not choose between the two. All right, so I'm having to wait all day long, and I'm just gonna tell you, I didn't like waiting, and that obviously is a very trivial example, but we don't like waiting. We're a very impatient culture. And in this situation, we have a psalmist who has just said, wow, God, I can't do this without you. I am crying out to you. And then says, but God, you're the one who can forgive. And you're saying, like, if he asks God for forgiveness, isn't that immediate? Doesn't God forgive right away? Is God saying, like, no, you got to wait for forgiveness? And so the truth is that the psalmist does get, we get immediate forgiveness from God, but we all know that the relational and emotional and circumstantial consequences of what of our sin of our depths take much longer so god will say like immediately it's wiped off the record but we have to live uh, with the waiting until god turns everything right again and sometimes it's hours and sometimes it's days and sometimes it's years and sometimes it's decades how long do i have to wait for God. One of the really interesting things about the Bible when it talks about waiting for God, and I, I did a, a study on this a few years ago, and I, I literally looked up every time in the Bible it talks about waiting for God or waiting for the Lord, and 
have to go back and double check, but I think in absolutely no example did it ever say what we're waiting for. So you say, I'm waiting for God to fix this. Or I'm, I'm waiting for God to make it right. I'm waiting for God to pull me up out of my depths. Never says what I'm waiting for God to do. I'm just waiting for God. So once I've acknowledged that God is the only one who is all powerful and completely personal, then the truth is that whatever God is going to do to bring me out of the depths and, and give me a new day is something only God can even imagine. So the truth is I'm just waiting. As hard as it is, I don't even know what I'm waiting for, but I have come to love and trust this one, this God, and I'm going like, you can do something I will never be able to imagine, so I'm just waiting for you. So the psalmist describes this in a metaphor which really is powerful for his situation, like a watchman waiting for the morning. And the idea is that I, I have put my hope in his word, he has said he will never leave me or forsake me. That's enough for me. I'm just waiting for him. I don't have to plunge ahead and try to fix it all myself. I can just wait for God, whatever he's going to do. And then we get to verses 7 and 8. So read this one for, with me as well. I think I forgot that, the last one, but you can, you can make up for it this time, all right? So verses 7 and 8 all together. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Interestingly now, the psalmist moves in verses 7 and 8 from an I psalm to a you psalm. So out of my depths, I'm crying, O Lord, hear my prayer. And by the end, this is something he's encouraging others to do, right? Now, I did this PowerPoint on Wednesday, and Reagan, our uh, IT guy, asked me this morning, he said, have you updated your PowerPoint? I said, no, I'm going with it. But I kind of wish I had a little bit, because I was really trying to stick very closely to the words in the text. And when I looked at verses 7 and 8, I realized the word put is not in there. I was so crushed. Like, nobody else would care, but Bob, like, this really bothers me. But let me tell you why I think it might belong there anyway. The verb is the verb hope. So literally it reads, hope in the Lord, right? But we use hope in so many different ways, including as a noun and, and as a verb. And sometimes we use it in ways that maybe are uh, just sort of feelings, like I hope things are going to get better. But when we translate it this way, it becomes a choice. It's volitional, right? I am choosing to put my hope in the Lord. So the last step of this is putting, which is another way to say choosing. Like I am going to choose to trust God and I'm going to find my hope there. Not necessarily a change in my circumstances or my feelings, but I am going to find hope by choosing so let me unpack the rest of these couple of verses for you a little bit. So why do we choose to put our trust in the Lord? With him it says there is unfailing love. I find any excuse to, to give you the Hebrew for this because it's like my favorite Hebrew word. And you've probably heard it from me before if you've been here very long. It's the Hebrew word chesed. All right, so it's H with a twist, K-H-C-H. E-S-E-D, chesed. You have to say it all with me? Chesed. All right. So he says, with you is chesed. 
And chesed is the, the Old Testament equivalent of agape in the New Testament, with which you might be a little bit more familiar. But it's sort of like the love that God will never give up on. It's the covenant love. In the Old Testament, it's sometimes translated loving kindness or mercy, because there is the idea like you don't deserve this, but with the Lord is unfailing love, it's chesed, like there's a covenant, there's a deal, and on his side of the deal, he will never forget the covenant. So this is, this is why I can trust him, like it doesn't make sense right now, but with the Lord is chesed, but that's not all. Then the psalmist goes on and says, with him is full redemption. Now let's pause on that word redemption for a moment because it's a Bible word. It's not used as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, but it has a synonym in Old and New Testament, which is kind of an ugly word. So to fully appreciate it, you gotta live with the ugly word here for a moment. The synonym for redemption is ransom. Now, why is that an ugly word? If someone kidnapped your child, and then said, I am requiring you of you a million dollars to get your child back. That's ransom. And it's not only illegal, it's horrible, in part because you're having to pay all this money for someone who did a crime, and you would do anything to have your child back. But the point is, the child belongs to you. Why would you have to pay someone else to get what rightfully belongs to you back? That's what ransom is. And that's what redemption is. So it's to buy back something that already belongs to you. And the scripture says, with God, there is redemption. But there's another beautiful adjective in here. With God, there is full redemption. Now this word actually is plural, but it's hard to translate it because the noun is singular. Redemption is singular, but they put a plural noun in front of it. So with God is many redemption, or with God is lots of ransom, right? We might say with God is repeated redemption. That's a good way to translate it. So the idea is if you know the story of Israel, how many times did God have to buy back his people? Did he have to do it all over again and reclaim them? This is the idea that this is the kind of God with unfailing love that will keep coming back and bring you back. That's why he has unfailing love. What a God. So what the psalmist is saying here is there is this many-faceted redemption, and I know, and now he's turned from his personal circumstance to Israel, and he's saying, like, even though, and probably this psalm was written sometime during the exile or during the period right after that, and it was not back to where it was, I know God will buy us back again because of his unfailing love. God's going to do it again. I know he'll redeem Israel. And the beauty on this side of the cross is that we don't have to think about multifaceted redemption, repeated redemption. The redemption has been won for us once and for all in Jesus Christ. And the ransom has been paid. And like every time we come back, it's not like there needs to be another purchase of God. The one purchase has covered us for all time in Christ when we place our trust and confidence in him. This is the kind of God that we have. So this is what the psalmist says. It's like at the end of, at the end of uh, my reflection here, after I'm crying, and then I'm fearing and recognizing who God is, and then I'm waiting. My pudding is putting my hope in the God who has a track record of never letting me go and has made sure in Christ that I never, ever forget that. The last slide is just a simple quote. 
If there are no depths, there are no heights. There's something good about living in the depths because you would never appreciate mountains if you didn't have valleys. I mean, literally, think about it for a moment. On a literal level, there would be no mountains if there were not valleys, if there were not low places. So metaphorically then, like you will never appreciate life. Maybe that somebody says like, well, what, there are no valleys in heaven, like no problems or sins in heaven, but maybe that's why we live this life. So we can experience all through life what it's like to hit valleys and to be in the depths. And then for eternity, we can always have like this, I don't wanna go back there down there on earth because it's too much up and down, right? So if there are no, somebody said earlier, like if there's no hell, there's no heaven. So this is the idea, like you have to experience what it is to be at the bottom in order to experience the wonder that it is that God redeems that. Our Christmas carols have some wonderful songs behind them, and I was trying to figure out exactly how to close this sermon today. And I had just said to my wife last night when I was stringing our 430,000 lights on the Christmas tree, that, and I, by the way, this is, oh, I shouldn't even do this. This is total distraction, but I, like I poked myself with one of them. Have you ever heard of the stigmata? Like Jesus has a, a wound in his hand. Like I'm going, Linda, is this stigmata? She goes, no, you poked yourself with a Christmas light. All right, it's, get over it. So I'm putting the lights on the Christmas tree and Google is playing, uh, or Pandora is playing our Christmas music in the background. Uh, out comes Oh Holy Night. And I just said to Linda last night, I think it's my favorite Christmas song. So I looked it up this morning and looked up the story about O Holy Night and the words to O Holy Night. And I've seen this story before, but never quite in this way. So first of all, most of our greatest songs, not just Christmas carols, are written during somebody's depths. Like you can write words about truth and it's not quite the same as somebody who's in the depths and drowning and writes words of hope, hope, and that's O Holy Night. It was written actually after the French Revolution in a time of economic and political uncertainty in France. And the story of the, the song is that there was an obscure Catholic priest in a tiny little village in southern France that even today has only 5,000 people living in it. So even as sort of a tourist town, because that's where this song came from, like nobody cares much about this little town in France. So this priest actually is having a new organ put in the church. And he wants a poem to celebrate the new organ that's going to play at Christmas. That's cool, right? So uh, he commissions the local wine connoisseur to write uh, a a poem for the Christmas Eve mass. And the guy writes these words in French, of course. And the next year has somebody put music to it. And that music is still what we sing. But of course, we don't sing it in French. We sing it in English. So we sing a translation. So what happened to me this morning is I went back and learned that story and among other things learned that that did you know this song was actually banned for a while? It It became so popular in France that everybody was singing it in their Catholic churches and the Catholic church said, can't sing that song, you know why? Because first of all, it is, uh, the lyrics were written by this wine connoisseur who later became a heretic. We can't sing songs written by a heretic. Second, the music was written by someone who's allegedly Jewish and uh, the Catholic uh, faith and the Jews over the years, there's been a lot of animosity. It's a lot better today, but in the 19th century, it's still there. So we can't sing a, a music written by a Jew. And third, it's new music. 
Like, we don't sing new music. The kind of songs the Catholic Church sang were like the one that we're going to sing at the end of this service, all right? That's medieval music. It's another great carol. But they're going like, this is such weird music, it doesn't belong in church. But by that time, the song had become so popular that, uh, that banning O Holy Night, which the church tried to do, would be like me saying, I'm going to ban Santa Claus. Like, not happening, right? It's too, it's too much, you know, too popular, right? So it didn't work, and the song spread again in France and all over the world, and it was translated in English, which is the version that you sing and that I love. But this morning what I discovered is the original French words, and I would read them to you in French, except I can't speak French and you wouldn't understand it anyway. So what I have is a paraphrase of O Holy Night in the French, from the French original, and it's not poetic, because it's just literally, what does it say? And I want you to close your eyes, because this is my prayer, okay, to close the sermon and see how it fits these themes of Psalm 130. Midnight, Christians, is the solemn hour when God as man descended unto us to erase the stain of original sin and to end the wrath of his Father. The entire world thrills with hope on this night that gives it a savior. People kneel down. Await your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas, here is the Redeemer. May the ardent light of our faith guide us all to the cradle of the infant, as in ancient times a brilliant star guided the oriental kings there. The king of kings was born in a humble manger. O oh, mighty ones of today, proud of your greatness, it is to your pride that God preaches. Bow your heads before the Redeemer. Bow your heads before the Redeemer. The Redeemer has broken every bond. The earth is free and heaven is open. He sees a brother where there was only a slave. Love unites those that iron had changed, chained. Who will tell him of our gratitude? For all of us he is born, he suffers and dies. People stand up, sing of your deliverance. Christmas, Christmas, sing of the Redeemer. Christmas, Christmas, sing of the Redeemer. Amen. Let us pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us stand as we affirm our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.